Find the book of Titus in your Bibles, please. The book of Titus. It's, uh, in my Bible, it's only two pages. I can read it all in, in a few minutes, actually. And uh, it's a book that we've tackled before. It's been several years ago. Um, but the title of this, this next series, we'll spend about five weeks on this, is called Do Good. And uh, I want to set up uh, just a study here, or uh, the theme for a little bit about doing good. Um, I, this week, was with a bunch of pastors. On, on Thursday, when it was snowy and all that kind of stuff, eventually got out and um, had, a, had a luncheon with some pastors, a very, just a handful of us because of the weather. And um, we talked about how hard it would be and how hard it is if you're not a pastor that works for a church, but you're a, a person that works in the world in general, to navigate that world as a Christian, that how difficult it is to get all the messages and all the requirements and all the obligations that the world says you must sign up for and sign on to and still be a, a follower. It's, it's becoming hard to watch those training videos and, and read those manuals and sign those papers. It's just, it's just a tough world to live in right now. And to navigate that is very difficult. And so we as pastors, I mean, I've got it pretty good. You, you expect me to stand on the Word of God to be employed here. But for somebody that's not employed with a Christian organization, that's a, that's a difficult thing. And so we prayed for you. Uh, we know how hard it is and how difficult it is. And part of the reason I want to tackle the book of Titus is because it explains and it points out, uh, and this is the ultimate goal, of how to navigate as followers of Jesus Christ in a world that does not agree with you. It's, it's written to a man named Titus, but it's wit, written to Titus on the island of Crete, and we'll get into some of the background here. But much like today, uh, the Christians were the minority. They, didn't, they weren't highly respected. They did not have uh, power and influence the way they would hope. And yet, Paul writes this book to a guy named Titus. Uh, we have just spent several weeks talking about church planting and how certain churches got started, whether it's Ephesus or Rome or whatever. You could title this the letter to the to the church at Crete as well. It could be just like a, another letter. It's written to a man named Titus, but it's written to the Christians there as well through him. And so I, I hope it will be helpful. Um, the name of the the series is called Do Good. And if you if you have a, a New International Version, they put those headings over it. And I just want to I'll get, throw them up on the screen here. Here's what the outline of according to the NIV how they how they've organized this. And tell me if you don't see this theme coming out. Next week, we'll look at elders who love what is good. So the leaders of the church, whatever this thing is called goodness, the leaders of a church ought to be into that, right? It ought to be something important to them. Followed on the heels of that is a instructions to Titus to rebuke those who fail to do good. Followed on the heels of that is doing good for the sake of the gospel. And followed on the heels of that is we're saved in order to do good. Can you Tell the amount of creativity it came to, to come up with this title. Paul's trying to tell Titus something, and that's to be good people. Now, we need to define that a little bit, and here's, what I, here's a, a working definition. I may tweak it a little bit as we go, but here, when I say we as believers ought to be good people, with the idea of how do we navigate a world like ours, because there's lots of good people out there, and it depends on your definition, for a believer, I'm going to give you three just thoughts here. One, to be a good person from a Christian perspective is to be serious about your faith. 
okay? To be serious about your faith, to be sincere about your faith. You really, you really mean it, okay? The second area to be a good person is you take sin seriously, meaning in your own heart, okay? Because we, we live in a world that there's sin everywhere, and it's very easy, and, 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 and I think our first instinct is to talk about the sin out there. No, we're not good Christians. We're not good people unless we're fighting sin in our own lives, okay? And then serving. So I have three S's, serious about your faith, fighting sin, and serving the, the world you live in, lovingly showing them the love of Christ. All under that idea of how do we navigate a world that does not think like us and frankly doesn't like the way we think and will try and squeeze it out of us as best they can. Well, that's the outline. We're supposed to be good people. Okay? Now, let's read the text here. And, and um, I thought, well, this will be an easy week. There's only about four and a half verses I want to get to, and these things are loaded. So here we go. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time and which now is at, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I want to tap into verse 5 for a second. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. We'll come back to that verse next week, but that's the, that's the chunk for this morning, okay? Let's pray. God, um, help us to not just have a Bible study now, but to hear from you um, what it means to be your elect children, what it means to be living in a place similar to Crete where um, you're not held in high honor. And so, God, help us to um, learn and be changed by this, God. Um, help us to reflect better, to be the kind of good people that, that Paul is trying to communicate here. So I just pray to your work in our hearts, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, point one I have is the letter to Crete. Again, this could be like the le letter to the Ephesians or the letter to whatever, um, Titus is the recipient of this letter, but it's written to the church in general. There were a hundred different towns on the island of Crete. It was, I think it was about 65 miles long and 35 miles wide at the highest point in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And um, there, anyway, there are lots of churches. There are house churches. And Paul was writing to, to Titus, much like he wrote to Timothy, about the churches there. So Titus, you can think of as the pastor or the uh, almost like the bishop of those churches at that time. And so under that, let's just kind of get into the, the details. A is who is responsible for this letter? You don't have to be a rocket science or a biblical scholar. No, the guy's name is Paul, right? In that day, you began your letters like Paul does all his letters with your name first. Like we sign letters at the end, they sign letters at the beginning. And so his name is Paul. And then he gives you his credentials, if you will, his authority, much like Rome Paul had briefly been through this island. Um, we're not exactly sure how the church got started, much like Rome as well. Probably Cretans who were at Pentecost and then scattered ended up there. And so there were believers there by the time Paul writes this. And again, he had been there because he's writing to somebody he left behind. But his credentials are twofold in verse 1. He calls himself, first of all, a servant of God. 
Okay? So the most important thing that Paul leads with anyway is here's why you ought to listen to me. Here's why my letter has some authority is because I'm a servant of God. Um, the word servant is um, a slave, and it's a very technical word. It's called doulos. It's a, it's a bond, bond servant, which means somebody who decided that I want to be your slave. Okay? The Old Testament had set this up. There, were, there was a process. We have employers and employees and stuff like that today. Most of the economy was a very small percentage of wealthy people, and everybody else was indebted to them in some form or fashion. And so they were slaves. If you had a job, you were either part of the rich family or you were basically a slave. And in the Old Testament, every once in a while, the slaves, well, not every once in a while, probably regularly, the slaves would get in over their head. They would owe more. They would not be able to get out of slavery. And, but every seven years, God set a system to say, you can be free. It was called the year of Jubilee. Many of the slaves decided and realized that I am better off working for my master if they had a good master than I am out there on my own. And so they would, and this is found in Deuteronomy and Exodus, they would say at the year of Jubilee, I, of my own free will, want to be your slave. And they would take them down to the temple and they'd pound a hole in their ear, they'd pierce their ear, and that person would be a doulos for the master. And what Paul is saying here is, I am a slave to Jesus Christ by choice because he's the best master that I have. Does that make sense? And so his first thing is, I am a slave. Now, Here's how I want to apply it to us. Can you say with that definition, you're a servant of Jesus Christ. You're a servant of God. See, too often I want to call myself a Christian and I don't understand that that means I'm a servant of God by, by saying he is my master. He's my Lord. You can't call yourself a servant of God and yet do what you want to do. You're no longer your own master if, if he's your master. And so Paul starts with that. And then the second point he says is I'm apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Technically, for first century, there were the apostles. They were the ones who witnessed Jesus Christ. They were with him from the beginning. Paul would say, I'm the one abnormally born, that Jesus would come to him later. But it was also just simply a messenger, somebody who relayed a message with the authority of the person that sent them. And so Paul is both in that sense. But his calling card, his authority to write this letter and for the people there to listen to him is he is a servant of Jesus Christ, of God and he's sent by Jesus Christ. Okay? That's, that's why they ought to listen to him. And not quite the technical sense, but we play the same role today. Jesus Christ is our master and we have been sent by him to relate the good news to the world. And so Paul's writing from that background. That's the, the person that wrote this letter. Secondly, and this is the thick of it, is the reason for the letter. Why did he write it? So point B is the reason for the letter. And look at verse 1, goes on to say, here's why he wrote it. To further the faith of God's elect. Okay, can you see why this is going to take a while? To further the faith. Now, there's a couple ways to look at this, and both are right in their, in their own sense. We should grow in our faith. We should mature as Christians, and that's part of why he's writing is to encourage the believers there to grow in their faith. But there's also a technical sense of the faith. We don't grow in faith in general. You know, is it George Michael that says, got to have faith, if you're old enough to remember that song? You can have faith in all kinds of things, but there's a particular faith that we have faith in. There's a doctrine. There's, a, there's an orthodox set of beliefs. And Paul is writing to people who believe a certain thing. They believe the faith. 
Okay? And that's important in a world that wants to push us in all kinds of directions to understand, no, what is it that we stand on? What is it that we believe? Paul is trying to further not just a, a maturity in the believers, but a specific doctrine. He wants that to be furthered. And he calls them God's elect. Well, we could spend weeks and weeks, and people have written books and books on this. The, the truth is in the Bible that God knows the beginning from the end. He is predestined. He's elected and all that. We're still responsible to share the gospel and to respond to the gospel. But here he uses the word elect. Every illustration I've ever heard about trying to define what it means to be God's elect, and there's, I could point you to dozens of verses, Ephesians and other places where that term is used. Every illustration I've ever heard, kind of like the Trinity, falls at some level. But let me throw one at you, okay? And if you come up to me afterward and say, yeah, but, I'm going to say, you're probably right, right? So let me explain this. The, the, the latest one I heard or kind of I read was imagine a scrapyard of metal, just a metal scrapyard. And they have those big magnets, okay, that go over the scrapyard and certain metals ignore the magnet and other ma metals respond to the magnet. Does that make sense? And so the steel goes up and the aluminum stays down or the brass or whatever stays down. And one way to look at election is it is the working of God to call out those who will respond to the gospel. And he knows the beginning from the end. And so some people will say God's election means he's rejecting a bunch of people. The people that don't get picked up, if you will, are the ones that reject the, the invitation to the gospel. And so if that helps you in any way, He's writing to people who, yes, are God's elect. God knows the beginning from the end. But they are those who have responded to the gospel. And I think in the beginning of time, God worked all that out. And I'm not smart enough to know where they meet. But that's the idea here. That people that God had chosen. I think we looked at one week. Paul said, I, God said to Paul, I still have many people in this city. These were the people that responded to that. And every time the Bible uses that term, it's not to start an argument although that's what we do with it. Paul is using this term, and God uses this term, as incredible security for those who are saved. If God saved you, he's going to see you to the end. You're safe with him. And that's what he's trying to write to these people in this, in this island, this, this culture, that don't believe in God. And, he, and he's writing to these people saying, no, God's got you. He chose you. You're safe in his hand. That's why Paul's writing it that way. And these people have their knowledge of the truth. So they know the truth, the doctrine, and the knowledge there is a very experiential word. It's, where, it's even, if you think of marriage, it's how you know your spouse. It means you intimately and experientially know the gospel. It's not just something that's up here that you live it. It's, it's part of your whole life. And then catch this, and this goes back to our title. And the knowledge of the truth, that leads to godliness okay this is the crux of the matter for this letter this is the, for us this is what we're trying to take from it you can know all the doctrine in the world and it not lead to godliness and if that's the case then your truth you know is not what you think it is or you don't really believe what you say you believe so i i can quote person after person that will tell you this but either your faith is in the wrong thing or your, your profession of faith is spurious. You cannot believe the truth of the gospel and not at least work towards or hope to have a godly life. The gospel changes us, okay? 
And so, again, there are many professor, professors of the faith, not like seminary professors or college professors, professors of the faith, and I'll read you a quote later, who look no different than their friends and neighbors. That will not reach a broken culture like Crete or Smithville. It has to be that our faith means something and brings. We, are, we claim to be followers of God, followers of Jesus Christ. Another way to look at that word godliness is to say godlikeness. Much as we take on the image of Christ in our life, we should reflect to the world what God is like, right? And he's a good God. We're just saying that. And he does good things. And guess what? We should be good people who do good things. That's, we reflect who we say we believe. We should reflect what God is doing and, 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 and reflect who he is. The fact that he made a difference in the world, we should make that same kind of difference. And so when you get to that, it's much less about, when I say do good, um, that's kind of a loaded term. It means you've got to roll up your sleeves and do certain things. There should be action. There should be fruit there. But the main thing is your character or your attitude or your new life that begins that fruit. The fruit, the good works, is the outpouring of what a different attitude. My new attitude, my new heart, my new life changes the way I conduct my life. If you really want to break it down, the, the word godliness there, there's a Greek word, and it basically means, this is my hillbilly redefinition of it, it means to worship well, okay? It has the idea of worship, and it has the idea of doing it well. And the idea of godliness is you are so aware of, reverent to, desiring to honor God and Jesus Christ that everything you do is filtered through that. Every word you say, every action you take is first and foremost, how will this honor God? Everything. So a godly person is not just somebody who has this set of rules here or there. It's somebody who out of a heart of reverence to God lives their life in very practical ways that reflect that attitude. If you go to 2 Peter, you don't need to turn there, but God, or Peter basically has this setting, confirming one's calling and election. Make your calling and election sure. God has given you everything you need for a godly life. The, the gospel, the Holy Spirit, points us that direction. We have everything we need to do that. And to be clear, we are not saved by these good works. If you go, you have one page open, I hope, look at Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. So let's make that clear, right? We're not saved by our good works, but travel with me through Titus, verse 116, chapter 116, verse 16. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are disobedient, detestable disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. That's a false per, a person that's not a follower of Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good in your teaching, show integrity. Chapter 2, verse 10. So that in every way we may make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Verse 14 there in chapter 2. He who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. I want to stress these things. 
so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And finally, verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for the urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. He's certainly writing to them, you're not saved by your good works, but you ought to be about doing good works, right? And so here's a, here's a couple of quotes. A.T. Robertson wrote this because this disconnect for some of us is, I believe this, but I don't behave that way. And Robertson wrote this, the truth of the gospel changes one's pattern of life from ungodliness to godliness and holy living. And if it does not, either a spurious gospel has been presented or the genuine gospel has not been truly received or believed. A dangerous state of a delusion in which to live, an even more tragic state in which to die. If there's not fruit, he's saying, you either didn't get the gospel or you don't really believe what you say you believe. Richard Baxter to young preachers said, take heed to yourselves, lest your example contradict your doctrine, lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues. Catch that. Don't unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues. And this would be the greatest of hindrances of the success of your own labors. One proud, surly, lordly word, one needless contention, one covetous action may cut the throat of many a good sermon. A blast and blast the fruit of all that you have been doing. Let your lives condemn sin and persuade men to duty. Okay, catch that. One word, and forget the preacher part, could just ruin your witness to somebody, right? Lee, a guy named Leg, I think is his name, Richmond, wrote this to his son. Theology itself is important, but it sinks to mere science of literary attainment unless accompanied by an earnest and devotional application of its principles to the soul. You can have all the book learning in the world. But if it doesn't come out in your life, then you're, you're not helping anybody, including yourself. Well, that good night, that, that truth that leads to godliness, now I'm in verse 2, and it has a hope of eternal life. That's the path to eternal life, not because you're earning it. I don't know how, I'm trying to work on this. The other day I was, um, I was wanting to go someplace, and so, you know, we get lazy these days, and we just type the address into the car, and we just go where it tells us to go. And I had been where I was going before, and about halfway there, I'm thinking, this machine's telling me to go someplace else. I don't know where that machine's telling me to go, but I'm not going there, okay? So I kept driving, and luckily I was right, because I, it just, and I never did figure out what it thought I asked it, but it did not ask it for what I, I did not ask it for what I thought I asked it for. And so here's the deal. We get saved, and we're on this path to eternal life. I hope this makes sense. It's not because I do all these things that I earn eternal life. It's like if you're saved and God's taking you to Christ-likeness and eternity with him, you're going to go down this path. There's going to be fruit in your life. And anytime you're not on that path, you better figure out what's going on. Okay? So he says this kind of truth, this kind of doctrine leads to eternal life. It is eternal life. You have the Spirit of God living within you. And so that eternal life, by the way, doesn't just happen when we die someday. It starts now. My life should look different now. I have eternal life in me now. Which God who does not lie. Okay, so here's back to that election thing. 
God's not making this stuff up. He's promised you eternal life. He's promised you power over sin. He's promised to use you in your culture in this letter. But there's an important aspect to this. God doesn't lie because if you look down, I think it's in chapter 2, Cretans are always liars. So here's, the, here's what's going on in Crete. And I'll come back to this. Crete's God was Zeus. Okay, We've heard of Zeus just because. Well, Zeus was a liar and a seducer of women. And he produced lazy, lying people. If you, you are what you worship. Paul is writing to a, specifically an island whose God is a liar. Okay? And he's saying, your God does not lie. There's a difference here between your God and their God. And if, I hope I've already made this sense. And therefore, there should be a difference between your life and their life. Because you will worship, or you will walk the way you worship here. Now, I'll get more into this on the, on the setting of Crete in a little bit, but we live in a world that there is no truth. That there's lies everywhere about what you should believe, and it will be presented as truth, but it's a lie. Okay? And that means there's people following lies that are going to find out it doesn't lead where they think it is, which is where somebody who has the truth and lives that truth will be a contrast to that and actually appealing to that in many ways. And so this idea that God who does not lie, yes, it's true, and we know it all over the Bible, but in Crete specifically to a culture that does not believe in truth, we have a God that doesn't lie. And he promised all this, it says, before the beginning of time. This is that election and predestination. God knows the beginning from the end. Back to my GPS story. When you go off the suggested GPS route, and I do that all the time. I argue with my GPS. I know better, and I want to stop off at Panera and all this kind of stuff. What does it do? It recalculates, right? And it gets you back on the path. We have to recalculate all the time. Newsflash, God has never, ever once had to recalculate. Nothing happened in the world that he said, oh, my plans are messed up now. I've got to figure this out. Jesus Christ was crucified from the beginning of the world. God knew the full story. We've told it here before. God created what was good. We sin and fall. God didn't say, oh, now what do I do? No. He told him in the garden, your seed will crush his head. It was all the story of the gospel. And sure enough, it's going to go on. God has never had to recalculate. He doesn't lie, and he knew it before the beginning of time. So this is a welcome message to people who live in a topsy-turvy world where there is no truth. And every day, I mean, we got things flying over. We got UFOs these days, right? I mean, it's just, what next? Nothing takes God by surprise. Verse 3. And which is now at his appointed season, he has, and which now at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Verse 3, at which now at this point, at his appointed time. Again, this was, they were there at that exact moment by God's plan and God's design. And I really want to drive this home to us here because I believe God has placed us here for such a time as this. That right now, as the world is being turned upside down in so many ways, there is something refreshing about a group of people who believe a truth that can't be shaken, that still love their enemies even though they disagree with it. There's all kinds of things here that just are so in contrast to the world around us that, as Paul says, 
at his appointed season, he brought it to light. Okay? And he says, I brought it to light through preaching. We talked about how can they hear if they don't hear, how can they believe if they don't hear? We don't have to make this stuff up. It is simply, I, I came across this maybe a week or so ago, and maybe I've shared this with you. If you're an, a believer and you have unbelievers in your life, and you really care for them and you want them, and you don't know what to say all the time, I'm just telling you, if you can ask somebody if they just want to read the Bible with you. There's, there's many non-believers who are curious about what we believe. And they may be, it doesn't have to be an in-depth Bible study or something. Just open the book of Mark or open the book of John. Just start reading something with them and they will start asking questions. And guess what? You'll get to answer questions they have about this goofy book that we believe. It's through the, through the word of God that God opens hearts. And he, Paul says he entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. And again, of course, Paul was called to this specific ministry but he would say in first corinthians woe to me if i do not preach the gospel it's just so in him that he's got to get it out well point c is the recipients of the letter so who was this written to you can already guess verse four says to titus we'll learn more about titus and there's verse after verse about him but he the 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 synopsis is he was paul's right hand man if there was collection to be made he sent titus to do it if there was a some money that needed to go to jerusalem he sent titus with it if there were churches that need organized on the island of Crete, he sent Titus to do that. He was his right-hand man. Um, I, I can't, I, I mean, I won't hide this at all. All week long, I've thought of Neil Sanders this week. He is my right-hand man. If you, if you think there's anything good going on around here, it's because he organized it, okay? I'm not, I've told you, I'm not an administrator. I, details go right past me. You ought to thank God for Neil Sanders. I know you do. He'll be with us for almost 20 years now. So I told, I told Neil in the lobby, I said, hey, Neil, I think you're my Titus. And he goes, well, I guess I got to decide if you're my Paul, you know. <laughs> so he said, I think Titus is probably witty. And I said, I'm sure he was. So that was Titus. Titus was that to Paul. And more than that, not just his kind of right-hand man, but he says he's my true son. Paul had led Titus to faith. And I can't help again but think, who is it that's not saved yet that once they get saved is going to play an important role in the kingdom of God? There's people we may have written off already that God has a plan for them in his kingdom. Now they have to come to faith, and that was the setting here, but Paul says, he's my, my true son. And again, the question is begged, who are your sons and daughters in the faith? Have you led anybody to Christ? And, and I'll get to, I don't want to beat us up over that, but that should be on our our radar screen but understand this that's a process more than like a one-time event most of the time most people come to faith over many interactions with many different people over 75 percent of people come to faith because somebody that a friend or a relative just shared the gospel with them over time it's co-workers it's teammates it's classmates that see something different in a believer and eventually get there that takes a little of the pressure off. I'm not saying don't be frank and bold. I mean, Paul would pray for that. But have that on your radar screen again. And he says, we have this common faith again. And then he says, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, he signs most of his letters in a similar fashion. Just look at the word grace and peace there. Understand that's the gospel. That God offers you grace and now you're at peace with God. That's, that's how it works. Grace is he... He gives you what you don't deserve. He forgives your sins. He gives you the righteousness of Christ. You didn't earn it. It's all free. And because of that, you have peace. 
You will not have peace with God unless it's the grace of God, right? So that's point one. Point two, what about the land of Crete? What is this island like? And this kind of starts putting a bow on why it's important for us today. He says there, I left you in Crete in verse 5. This is a verse I wanted to pick up. That you might put in order what was unfinished. I can't tell you how many pastors love this verse. If, if you see something going on around here and you say, well, that's not quite being done right. I almost guarantee you 12 of us have already noticed that. There's always something unfinished. Here's Paul, the Apostle Paul, saying, I didn't quite get it finished there. There's a lot of pastors that love that. There's no idea of a perfect church, right? Even the good ones are not perfect. Well, he says, I left you there. You might put in order what is unfinished and point elders. This will be our verse next week. But I want to talk about Crete quickly. A, it had a postmodern ideology. You ever heard that term before, postmodern? How could they be postmodern when they're so ancient? Well, postmodernism means a few things. It means there's no objective truth. It means you can't tell me what's true or right or wrong. I have my own perspective of that. And in fact, anytime you claim to have something true, it's your way of oppressing me. Okay? Does this sound anything like today? That's the world they lived in too. There is nothing new under the sun. They lived in the same... Because Zeus was a liar. And Zeus seduced women. He, one person said he was fierce, fraudulent, and fake. And this is who they worshipped. They liked that. That's how they lived their life. He says in chapter 1, I was wrong, chapter 1, verse 12, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Paul's quoting one of their own prophets there, and Paul says he's right. That's exactly who you are. You're liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Well, this is where we live, too. I want to read you just a couple paragraphs from a book about how to uh, basically evangelize or make a difference in the workplace. It's called Workplace Grace, if you want to look it up. It says, many people today do not look much different from their non-Christian co-workers. They talk the same, they have the same work habits, they compromise on the same issues, and they entertain themselves in the same ways. Sometimes the only difference is where they spend an hour or so on Sunday morning. Think about that. Is the only thing different about you is that you happen to be here this morning. That's the condemnation this author is getting at. For the postmodern, truth is something discoverable, not with some outside authority. God can't define truth, right? We, need to, we believe a different God who does not lie, not Zeus who's a liar. That author goes on to say a foundational tenet of postmodern thinking is relativism. There's no such thing as absolute truth and no clear lines between right and wrong. Truth claims are often used as power plays, as one person or group seeks to dominate others. People with a postmodern viewpoint often embrace what has been called expressive individualism. If it works for me, it's true for me. Although many postmoderns cynically reject religion as a myth, they hunger for meaning and something that will bring order and purpose to their lives. They find themselves with no treatment for the guilt they experience and no antidote for their lack of satisfaction. Postmodernism takes you the wrong way. A God who is true and people who follow that true God with godly lives will stand out. Which, So first thing, they lived in, we live in a postmodern society. Secondly, very quickly, a perverse immorality. 
Just like Corinth and other places, when you have no good God, you have no good morals. No moral God, no moral good. World we live in, world they lived in. Thirdly, and this is where we start to get a little hope, potential impact. If their world was like our world, then we ought to look different. A few more quotes from that same book. And and again, these, these go as far as they go. Our job is not so much, or I would say exclusively, to bring people to Jesus, but to bring Jesus to people. Does that make sense? Think evangelism, think witnessing here. In fact, think witnessing. Witnessing is a noun, not a verb in the Bible. You are a witness for Jesus Christ. Meaning when people see your life, it points them to Christ. Now that doesn't mean you don't go witnessing, but primarily we're called to be witnesses. And the way we live our life should make a difference. Back to chapter 2, verse 10. Show that they can be fully trusted in every way to make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Paul would talk about grumbling and complaining and say, you can stand out like stars in a dark and warped generation. Jesus would say, people would see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Your good life is the most effective witness you have. And people, as Peter would say, will ask, and you should be ready to give an answer. One commentary says, Christians need to be prepared for a more effective witness in Crete, speaking of this book. When Christians live in open sin, they can hardly expect unbelievers to hear a message that claims to save us from our sins. Point three, the Lord of Crete. And this is our application. If it's true that there's a new God in town, a new sheriff in town, okay? Zeus is not in control. This culture is not in control. There's a Lord of Lord who claims every single life, who claims every single land. He claimed that island of Crete. And Paul had put Titus there to kind of do that work. And so here, A is changed lives. Has your life been changed by the gospel? Now, this does not mean sinless perfection. I wish it did, but it doesn't. And so, have you confessed your sin? Have you repented of your sin? It doesn't mean you got it all fixed. Listen, I know lots of Christians who are struggling with sin, but they're struggling with sin. Versus... They're surrendering to sin. Or that's just who I am. I'm not asking you to bring up past shame or anything like that. But if you have unconfessed, unrepented sin in your life, then you're not on the path of a godly life. And the world will see no different because they're hiding their sin too. Your life must be changed. Your desires change. Your habits change. Again, take that as far as you can. But it doesn't mean perfection. It means I hope you're working that way based on what God has done for you? Has your life been changed? Have you confessed and repented of sin? Secondly, if that's the case, then your life will be different. You'll have a contrasting life. You will hold on to a truth that the world claims is not there. You will have hope and joy that they say they can't find or they definitely can't find in what they believe. When we are gently but confidently standing by what we know to be true, we will shine like stars. We will stand out. We'll be persecuted because of it, but God will bring fruit from that. Back to that same book, Workplace Grace. Non-believers will take note of our joy when we work, our peace in the midst of disappointment, our graciousness towards people who try our patience. Like the adage, we may be the only Bible people ever read, at least to the point, at least to that point in their lives. 
So our, our changed lives will be so different from the world that it'll take notice, which is point C, and this is the last point, contributing lives. That'll make a difference in the kingdom. Okay? And you can say, well, that's slow, slow going. Absolutely it is. It's taken 2,000 years to get to this point, right? If you want to change your culture, do good. And the definition that we had, again, the, the definition is this. Are you serious about your faith? Are you fighting sin in your own life? And are you loving your neighbors in, in service? And we'll get into what the rest of the, this is just the introduction to the book. But that's what we're called to do today. So your first, again, this is not work salvation. If you don't know Jesus Christ, remember, you're not saved by your good works. We read that. If you're here self-righteously saying, I've done enough good or I've done good to get there, that's not the, that's not the gospel that you heard this morning. We all need that grace to have that peace. So if you've never confessed your sin to Jesus Christ and asked him to be your savior, today would be a great day. If you have sin in your life that you've just never dealt with with God, I've wrestled with this a lot recently, is like you, we all have the, we, I have sinful thoughts, sinful, you know, stuff. And I just kind of brush it off like, well, that, you know, that was dumb and whatever. When, when you are convicted of a sin, don't just move on. Confess that to Jesus Christ and you'll find forgiveness. But until it's out in the open with God and you repent of it, you're going to keep dealing with it. Take that as a moment of the Holy Spirit convicting you of something that you need to place before him. Okay? And then serve, your love, serve and love your neighbors and even your enemies. Let's pray. God, speaking of loving our enemies, while we were your enemies, you died for us. And we claim to follow you. And as this book will unfold, we'll see that that means we do, as we've talked about, good things because we serve a good God. We are to reflect your character to the world around us. And God, you draw people through that. Certainly, as Paul said, through the preaching of your word. But God, the work of the kingdom advances as we leave this place. And we live such good lives that they're curious to the point of admiring and even desiring, even if they won't admit it, the joy and the hope and the peace and the comfort that we have in you. God, my hope is that everyone here today would be a follower of yours, whether that's taking the initial step of salvation and asking you to save them, or as Paul wrote this letter to further our faith so that we can make a difference in a, in a hurting, confused, and dying world. May we shine bright, God, in Smithville, in our homes, in our workplaces. Pray this all for the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.